Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. All right. Hey, Danny, we're back for another great episode of uh, Gov Actually. I mean, I think this time it's actually going to be a great episode because we've got one of my favorite all-time um, government operations um, uh, thought leaders, and that's Max Steyer, who runs the Partnership for Public Service. I mean, first of all, all the episodes are great. I, I uh, take, take offense to um, any implication, but they are extra great. I think Max might be our first repeat guest, and that is very appropriate for the Gov Actually uh, podcast because Max is is government in so many ways and symbol. And <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing, Max, or not. But I, when I think of you, I think of you synonymous with. Uh, how about this? I think of you synonymous with good government and, what, and what's right about government. Well, I, I've said Max runs the clubhouse for good government, which is the partnership for public service. Full disclosure, I'm a board member, but but that's why, because because of Max and because of the tremendous organization, that team he runs and the good work they do. Max, I don't I don't know how we're even gonna let you get in on this. We're just gonna I mean, we don't let our guests <laughs> talk. <laughs> I, I, I much prefer just sitting and listening. This is like yeah. the nicest part of my day, uh, which has been very long up until now. So I can't complain. And if, 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 if this is the clubhouse for good government, I'm the guy who's like doing the laundry, the dishes, you know, whatever it takes to, uh, you know, to keep the customers coming back. And yeah. you can't ask for nicer customers than the two of you who are uh, some of my public service heroes. So thank you for your extraordinary contributions and the contributions to come, because I know you're not done, either of you. Thank you, Max. Well, you know, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, if, when you when you talk to an accountant in late March, early April, they're totally kind of focused on tax season. It's their busiest time of year, and everyone has a busiest time of year, right? For you, it's Sammy season, right? You're in the home stretch, getting ready for the Service for America awards. Um, and typically, I would imagine, to me, I've always marveled at the the size and scale and complexity of planning that event every year. But now, like everything else in the world, everything's upside down and you're having to, to be resilient and reimagine the event. So talk to us about the events and how this year has just been so different around getting ready for this, this important awards night. Well, as you suggest, I mean, Sammy's is truly one of my favorite uh, evenings and the you know, the breakfast where we announced the finalists is just a, a wonderful event as well in, in the first week of May. And um, the partnership, like everybody else in government and everyone else in our country, is making a lot of lemonade right now. And it's actually been uh, immensely um, gratifying to see the really amazing work that my colleagues have done to take what is a phenomenal challenge and find um, opportunity in it. And Sammy's is a great example of this, where we have always um, produced an immensely powerful evening. 650 people come. They are in awe of the incredible people that are doing such fantastic work in our government. 
and we leave the room and we always have the same talk, which is, we wish the rest of the, uh, you know, the United States could see this because they should. And, and in fact, they should. And lo and behold, we are trying to make that happen this time. So uh, we are, you know, making the virtue uh, out of necessity. We won't have the physical event that we've had the last 20 years, of course. Uh, can't, can't put 650 people in a room together, uh, not, not safely. And instead, we're doing a virtual event, and it's going to be an hour-long um, broadcast on YouTube, uh, Facebook, Twitter, everywhere. Um, Bloomberg TV is, is running it. And my hope is we will get to 1,000, 10,000, 30,000 X in terms of viewers that will actually be able to um, see and participate uh, in a way that we would never have done otherwise. And I don't think this is, you know, a this year only. My hope is that come next year, we do both the physical event and the virtual event. Now, um, easier for me to say than some of my colleagues who are dying under the workload, uh, but um, it really is um, been a phenomenally interesting uh, exercise. We've hired a production team that works with, um, you know, uh, converting Michael Lewis's book into a series for Netflix. Uh, I can't say a lot about the details. What I can say is all of your listeners should tune in on October 5th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for an incredible show. Really, we, we have, we're going to knock your socks off. It is going That's to be great. Did you watch the Emmys last night, which I think was like the first major award show to kind of do the virtual thing, get any ideas, you know? So I did not watch the Emmys. I don't even know when they show, but I'm probably in bed by the time that they're, they're on. But I will tell you that I'm, I'm confident that we will do better than the Emmys. We will wow. like, like take, so, take that, Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah, yeah, it's only Jimmy Kimmel. Come on, he's got nothing on Max. Max is going to but, but the thing is, it's not me. We have, I think it's seven comedians. Uh, so you, you, you put Jimmy Kimmel against our seven. And we shall right. see. Because oh, we, we have, we have comedians easy. telling all the stories of all of our honorees. It's going to be awesome. Wait, 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 wait. Do you count yourself as a comedian because your Definitely bad not. jokes is a staple of every Sammy? Yes. I mean, no, no, I am not. I am not counted. I, I, I will okay. say that I, I have a tiny cameo uh, that I that 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 will be fun for people to see, and then uh, a little a little uh, required, um, you know, good government pep talk. But 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 honestly, we have you know just a phenomenal group of first-year comedians um, who have all signed up to do this and a bunch of other very high-profile folk who will be participating. It's only an hour and um, you get your money back if you don't like it. <laughs> well, uh, Danny, I, I think we're going to, at the end of this episode, we're going to make people listen all the way through. It's not going to be so hard because we've got Max and we've got some other topics we want to bring up with him. But at the end of the episode, we're going to talk about how we're going to put together a Gov Actually watch party. So we'll we'll see. I mean, this is going to be the big test. How many, you know, how many of our listeners are going to turn into viewers? And I, I think of all the people who listen, um, you know, they this is this is their this is their award show. This is the kind of show that, that people are going to want to see. These are these are dedicated public servants who have really 
they've really shown, um, you know, done remarkable things in their careers. Uh, Max, would you give us like a sense of like who some of the who some of the folks we're gonna we're gonna you know you're choosing from here for these final awards? What what are some of the what are some of the honorees or can you, whatever you can tell us to give people a sense of what they're gonna what they're gonna see and when they tune in? Absolutely, and I'll say one more thing, which is I'm generally at the school that you under under promise and overperform, and it's gonna be great. Yeah. Just to be wow. clear about this. Wow. Oh, yeah. All right. Um, I'm, I'm going to start a, a clock in my office counting down to October 5th. Forget yeah. my election clock. Yeah. I'm done with putting a Sammy's clock. There we go. There we go. It's the right thing. Uh, so, look, um, you, you, you both know uh, there's just such exceptional work being done by so many different people uh, in our government, and it's hard to, you know, it's hard to pick. I do think, in fact, we are scratching just the, the surface on all the things that are going on um, and, and part of our challenge. And I would ask, you know, your, your, your listeners to help us find the 2021 uh, nominees because we need them. And October 5th, we will open up our uh, nomination portal as well. Um, but, you know, choose your, choose, your, choose your, you know, issue. You know, one that I think is obviously really fundamental or, you know, taking care of our veterans. And one um, story that I love, one of our finalists is a team of, of folk at the VA who uh, started um, this really amazing project of 3D printing uh, the organs and the different elements of the body that surgeons were going to have to work on. And they did it for a variety of reasons. One of which is that it enabled the surgeons and the doc doctors to explain to the patients what's going on and what's happening. And it also enabled them to enable the surgeons to be able to actually see what it is that they needed to do. So they weren't, you know, opening up somebody and for the first time, you know, noticing all the different elements that they might have to address. Um, so this 3D printing has really taken off across the VA system. And of course, when COVID came, they were able to pivot immediately to start producing uh, protective gear for, you know, those in the, in the VA. So again, a great example of, you know, agile, you know, change in, 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 the, uh, in the government. Um, so that's one example of, of, of many uh, that, um, you know, that make up our finalists and everyone can see those finalists at you know, serviceofamericanmedals.org and there'll be uh, six um, winners uh, for the federal employees. And we added a private sector honoree two years ago. And, and this year we have Sacha Nadella, um, the CEO of Microsoft as our private sector honoree, who's really quite an amazing guy. Uh, his um, father was a, a civil servant in India. Uh, and um, he has uh, really a real commitment to an understanding about the importance of government working right. I think one of the more powerful things that the SAMIs does effectively is it connects the government accomplishment and effort to to an individual that are the individuals sometimes that are impacted. And I think that to me, some of the more powerful moments of any SAMIs that I've been to is like when you brought on stage the person that got the heart transplant or the blood transplant that the government scientist um, revolutionized. Um, so it sounds like 
you know, with the with the VA that there are again awards that you can easily see how how people's lives are impacted in a very positive way as a result of these these amazing civil servants. Yes, it's interesting when we get our nominations. Federal employees um, are doing amazing work. They aren't often um, really super equipped to tell their own story well and to tell the story about how their work is impacting um, real you know people in a, in, a, in a consequential way. And we um, do a lot of digging to understand what actually um, has been done. And it's very rare that we don't uncover more impact. You know, it's, it's rare that the story has been puffed as opposed to understated uh, in terms of the, the role that folks have played in, in making a difference for people. Uh, and, I, and I share, so to me, the, 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 the most important element of the story is how do you help people? And um, sometimes uh, those, those people are inside the government. It's why we started the management excellence category got a lot of complaints from people saying, you know, we're at GSA and we don't like, you know, like, so we're helping. Yeah, how do you compete like, against like, NASA <laughs> and, and like CDC when you're like doing, you know, procurement? It's, you know, it's hard. So yeah, thank you for doing that. Yes, so we, we listened, we heard. For uh, those of us. I think that's okay. As, as an OMB person for many years going to the Sammies, no, you know, it's, it's just so inspiring because I felt like, you know, I'm a part of this team called the government workforce, which is way too often maligned and underappreciated. And often, you know, you can do a hundred things right and one thing wrong. And that one thing is, um, is what the focus is, is too often. And so, you know, I always felt lifted up whether, whether it was kind of like, the type of award that you give is typically more in the zone of direct citizen impact versus behind the scenes. That still always made me feel better because it elevated the, um, the endeavor of public service. When, yeah. And they've managed to figure out a way to do both. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, so where are you going to be, Max? Where are you going to be on that night? Are you going to be in a tux in at EPA at the Mellon Auditorium? Or are you going to be, or is that all part of the secret? It's all part of the secret. I, I, you will see me in a tuxedo. Uh, okay. You will. Um, I, I wanted to, 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 to add, though, one of the interesting parts of our journey in doing this program was we, we first started it thinking that it's the way of telling the American public the story of their government. And we realized relatively early on that there was a second high value of telling the story of our government to the government workforce itself. And um, what was quite striking is how little of a culture of recognition exists within government. And at some level, I, I've, I've thought this, and I so far haven't really managed to make great headway on it, but that if we were going to succeed in explaining what government does in a compelling way to the American public, having the federal workforce better equipped and, and interested in doing that itself was pretty fundamental, because you have 2 million civil servants. Um, I also think that one of the core pieces of it is how do you create a culture of recognition uh, so that people are not risk averse because 
they know that if they do something bad, they're going to get crushed. And if they do something good, people will ignore it. So like trying to change that balance. I don't think we've made the progress that I'd like on that score, but I think it's an element of what we're trying to do on Sammy's. And it comes back to this question that Dan T um, raised about the need for uh, recognition of the kinds of work that don't have the same kind of external um, visibility that uh, some, you know, CDC or, you know, you know, uh, you know, some other national security function. NIH, USAID. Yes. These stories of people. Um, yeah. Pretty much everyone is what you're saying. Yeah. That's, that, that was <laughs> everyone other than GSA. Other than GSA and OPM and OMB, but OMB, it, like it's OMB, so it gets to feel good just in general because, you know. Well, but there are also elements, though, too, of those other agencies that aren't like as high profile. Like one of my favorite management excellence stories is this guy at the Air Force. And you're like, well, of course, the Air Force does a lot of cool things. What did he do? He saved a billion dollars in fuel costs. And you're kind of like, that's pretty good, but it isn't, you know, the bunker buster bomb in, in Afghanistan. It's, you know, it's an internal facing story. Right. So, how do yeah. you get these stories? How do you, how do you know? You said on October 5th, the application is going to open up. You know, the, the, the hundreds of thousands of listeners to Gov Actually is a, great, is a great source, potentially, of nominees. Where do they go? How do they do it? What, what, should, they, what should they be thinking about as they look, as they work in, with, or interact with people? How do, you, how do you make a recommendation? So it's super easy. Uh, you know, you go to servicetoamericamedals.org. You, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 you're talking about a matter of minutes to actually be able to nominate somebody. It's a, you know, few short questions as to who you nominate. You know, my view is one of the worst conversations I've ever had about Sammy's was with a cabinet secretary who will go by name, who I was pestering about nominations. And this cabinet secretary said to me, I don't have anyone who I think deserves a Sammy's to nominate. And I thought to myself, the internal track in my head was, you're a failure. You're a failure. <laughs> because I'm thinking, that's part of what you should be, you know, if you, you should quit. Like if you're a leader in an organization and you feel that way. But the reason why I tell the story is that the, the standard isn't who you think should win. The standard is, who do you admire at all? Because simply nominating somebody is a sign of respect to them. And let us do the work of, of you know, saying, you know, you know, who goes in the pile of the folks that get voted on by the national, by the, by the selection committee. But my view is your, your viewers should think about anybody who has really made a difference for them or someone around them or that they've seen and nominate them. It's like, it's just a nice thing to do. Uh, and people feel good about it. And it's a way of really creating again, that culture of recognition. And the worst thing I think at some level is over, you know, the front end, we did see a dip, and I think people did begin to say, well, this person doesn't match up against the stories we've heard. Mm -hmm. They're like, that's not the right standard. Don't do that. Yeah. If, if you were inspired by them, there's a good chance that others will be inspired by them as well. And they'll appreciate being thanked. It's a thank you. Like, it's just, just nominating someone is a thank you. And I've seen, actually, resumes where people are, like, nominated for Sammy's. They're like, great. <laughs> you know, that's a good thing that they feel that way. So... Great. So you've had to get, so let's take a break. You've had to get creative around Sammy's and COVID. 
When we come back from the break, let's talk about some of the other things you're seeing government agencies do or the presidential transition that I know you're directly involved in. Um, in, in the world of COVID, what are some of the creative things that are going on or what are some of the impacts? So why don't we take a break and come back and we'll talk about that. And let's make sure that before we go on break, that people know that they've got to stay to the end so they can hear how they can join the Gov Actually Sammy's Watch Party. Very important. Absolutely. Yeah, very important. Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. Gov Actually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. All right, Danny, we're back. Uh, Max has taken some time to walk around the room, stretch and limber up for all your questions about how, in general, um, not just uh, the partnership and the SAMIs have had to evolve and adapt to the new environment, but what's he seeing uh, in, in the government workforce in general in terms of trying to, as he said, make lemonade out of the lemons we've been handed in the, in the current environment. Yeah, I mean, Max, the... I mean, I think like the rest of the world, the government's gone through kind of an accelerated training and pilot of mass telework. Now we're starting to see some, I drive by the Pentagon, I see the parking lot is full again. I think more people are starting to come back, but I don't know that we're ever gonna be the same again as a government, given all that we've learned in terms of what we can and can't do during mass telework. What, what do you, what are you seeing and do you have a, a any prognostication on how we're going to evolve around telework in the post-COVID world? So Danny, I actually worry about the reverse of it never being the same. I worry about the pressures to try to return it to what it was. I think oftentimes government actually responds quite admirably in a crisis and then unlearns the lessons that it learned during the crisis once the crisis disappears. And um, an example of that for me that I found really compelling was to watch what I thought was an extraordinary response with the Recovery Act in the Obama administration. And pretty much all that infrastructure that was built out to deliver on really important uh, services um, was allowed to, to degrade and disappear. And instead of building on top of it, um, it went away. And I, and I worry about that around telework. I think the government has done a fantastic job, uh, as you say, of moving to telework with no notice, uh, with limited, um, oftentimes, uh, technology and investment, and has really continued to deliver critical services to the public. I think there are some challenge areas. You know, a good example of that is um, in the Intel or classified environments. I think those have been um, much more difficult and there are elements of you know, non-classified, like the um, call centers at IRS, as an example. Um, but by and large, I think the government has really been quite excellent at this. And I think it's really important for us to, um, to document that capability and the advantages that came from it. I saw a story like in the first month that the Social Security Administration saw a significant uh, drop in their backlog because people were a lot more productive teleworking. And I think that's true in a lot of other places. I do think what we need to do is to actually push hard to make sure these changes uh, become real. Uh, I talked today, in fact, with a government leader um, who 
said, you know, I don't think we're ready for this. We need to study this over a longer time before we actually, you know, resolve this. And I think that's a mistake. I think that, uh, and it's a mistake that I don't want to see happen, but I think is not unlikely. But I think that returning to uh, status quo ex ante is the Norman government, and that would be a real loss. We um, go ahead, Dan. Go ahead, Dan. I was just going to say that we we had um, when I was working at GSA, we had taken this very aggressive stance about um, telework, where all one hundred percent of GSA folks had a telework agreement, including the GSA administrator. And uh, I remember explaining it to other agency partners, and the most difficult thing they had getting their head around, among the most difficult things, was the idea of giving people a laptop. They were worried about the, the lap, you know, they'd say, how do you keep them from getting stolen? And um, uh, I'm like, well, how do I keep the computer on the desk from getting stolen? And I, I think if you're worried about employees stealing things, you may already have a leadership problem. You may already have a bigger problem. And I'm just wondering how, you know, how quickly agencies have, you know, made it through those initial wickets. And, um, and then what, yeah, what, what, what actions can be taken to then nail those, that progress down and nail that, those improvements down? Yeah, look, I, I, Dana, I think it's, it's quite extraordinary. The one my favorite on this is inevitably when you talk about telework, people immediately go to, well, how do you know they're actually working? And my question is, how do you know they're actually working when they're in your building? And they don't ask the question when they're in the building. They only ask the question when they're not. You know, like, that's actually the problem here. And you saw like the stories around, you know, PTO, Patent Trademark Office, you know, attacking their telework. Actually, they do a fantastic job. They're a real role model. And yet, of course, they have some problems, but everybody has problems. And so you're comparing it not to some absolute, you know, fantastic, uh, you know, mythical norm, but you should be comparing it to the reality of what normally happens. So we do have, we have this natural experiment, as they call it, in the sense that we had the pre-COVID and now the post-COVID. And you, you cited the example of Social Security. I wonder if there's any data on PTO, uh, Patent and Trademark Office. You know, now that now that they can't push back on it for, you know, for a variety of administrative reasons, they have to do it that way. I'm wondering if they're seeing any fall off or any progress in in their backlog in their work. So PTO, because they just have always had whatever is that 95 percent, you know. So, but you're right. There is a natural experiment in a lot of places, and I only have anecdotal information. So you ask, like, how do we nail it down? You know, plainly, I think one way you nail it down is to have good data about performance. I think the risk is that that takes a while, and what I would hate to see happen is people to say, well, we'll allow that once we have all the data, which is what I heard from the agency leader today. What I would say is, keep what you got right now. And then let's, you know, understand how to make it better and look at the data, but don't go back. Uh, um, you know, look, there's definite value to having in-person interaction for some things. And I do think that that in some level, the hybrid may be even more difficult than having everyone uh, remote. I mean, I'm thinking about that for our own organization. You know, we're you know, we have a Zoom meeting, everyone's on Zoom. Well, what happens when, you know, you got four people in a room and Two people are, are, are on Zoom. It's a little more complicated. It's not the same thing. So, but I think that the way we need to nail this down is by being very clear about um, saying that the norm now needs to be this. I think Congress has a real role in pressing to make sure that this is the case. Uh, and I think this is a question about 
you know, um, equipping the managers, leaders in government, both career and political, with a better, you know, understanding about how to manage in this kind of environment. So yeah, a lot of people are forced to do it without any real understanding about how to do it well. And we need to invest in their training and it may, we may have to catch up uh, to, to, to where we are right now. Because you have both a, you know, technical, you know, hard uh, equipment issue and you have a managerial issue and, and they're both really important to, to get right, to make this work right. Hey Max, let me, let me throw a different uh, concern at you. It's the the economic concern on our city centers. Let's take Washington D.C. as an example. I mean, an entire economy is built on the premise of the type of foot traffic that we have coming into the city every day. It it funds and finances and keeps the metro solvent, the mass transit system solvent all the, the stores and the restaurants and the local businesses that, that rely on that. And I think this is a problem across the United States as, as this um, pandemic maybe changes the way organizations around the country and around the world think about the, the need for co-location if, if without the productivity lapse due to, due to virtual working environments. DC is a unique situation because it's an industry, it's a town that's dominated by one industry, right? So, so either the, the current president or a future president, depending on what happens in the election, as the pandemic starts to decline in its impact, could, could order all the federal employees back, not just because they're not for any reason that they're concerned that they're not getting their work done at home. That's already probably proven wrong. But in order to to restabilize the economy of of the DMV, um, thoughts about that? <laughs> so look, uh, my own view is that we should be very thoughtful about um, the dislocating effect of change, and we should think through um, how do you support communities uh, to to manage the change in a way that's least disruptive. But at the end of the day, I don't think that over the long term, our government should be um, operating uh, to prop up an, econ an external economic issue as opposed to performing its services for the American public as the most efficient way possible. So my response to you would be, if you want to subsidize you know, downtown DC, go ahead and subsidize downtown DC, but don't make the government work inefficiently to do it. Uh, and if you need to address, you know, a, a, an immediate issue caused by the, you know, the speed of change and the unexpected nature of this change, then help DC out, you know, as you would um, any, uh, you know, set of workers who are dislocated because of trade change or whatever else it might be. But, but I think we, we ought to be very clear about operating our government in the way that is most effective for mission delivery and telework has got to work. And we all know that, you know, there may be some negative externalities that you've identified, and there's some real positive ones too, whether, you know, it's the, you know, reduction in traffic or reduction in pollution, um, they're big. And, and, and this is, you know, you're saving people three, four hours a day that are commuting. That's just a massive uh, improvement on their individual lives and on, you know, the government's ability to get stuff done. So we should be doing it. Max, I'm going to change just a little bit. Um, 
but still within the context of this idea of, of managing change and doing a good job of that, um, preparing for it and, 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 and anticipating it. The partnership is doing a tremendous amount of work around um, the potential, well, for, for an administration transition, either to a second term or to a new administration. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing in the Center for Presidential Transition and how that's going? And, and uh, you know, tell us a little bit about that. I'm sure everyone's interested in it. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna put the screws on Dave Marchick to get off his podcast and come to this one at some point. <laughs> Yeah, well, Dave's the right guy to talk to. He's done a phenomenal job, really. He's the director of the, the Center on Presidential Transition. And this is a just a fabulous topic. I mean, you think about, you know, we all, and, and Dave has done the quotes for all the modern presidents, think about the peaceful transfer of power as being the hallmark of our country. You learned that as a kid. It's peaceful and ugly, or historically has been ugly. And people haven't focused on the ugly part. And, you know, my favorite stat that Dave actually cites is, you think about the um, people part of it, and I think it's the most important part in my view, 4,000 political appointees, typically 1,200 plus that are Senate confirmed. And in the first 100 days, the high watermark for any uh, president to get their people in, in the Senate confirmed spots of the 1,200, so the stat here is how many people in the first 100 days were you able to get confirmed of your critical leaders, your key team on the field, that number was done by the Obama administration. In the first 100 days, they got 69. 69 out of over 1,200. And you think about it, it's the equivalent of, you know, you know, the football team that comes to the field and, you know, has one player. You know, you just can't do it. And it's, it's so how you start is the best prognosticator for how you will do as a president. If you fall behind, it's impossible to catch up because... You just don't have a long enough runway. You're, you're unable to do so. So the transition is all about creating a learning system, which did not exist previously. It's all been Groundhog Day. Every new effort has got, you know, oral history at best. And our intent was to create the playbook, which we did. We're now in version 4.0. Uh, and to help in two ways, help um, operationally understand how do you do a transition right? What, are, what, what should your goals be? Um, which is actually the starting point that people didn't, didn't have right. And how do you do it? And then how do you create better rules to enable it to happen um, more effectively? There are three primary um, constituencies you have to be thoughtful about. Um, the one that most people think about is the challenger uh, who's coming in. Um, but there is equally important the career workforce that's responsible for doing all the transition planning in the different agencies. And then there's the incumbent administration, which has um, two responsibilities, one of which is to be a good steward in providing the support for a potential transition. You know, no incumbent likes to think about losing, but they ought to. Uh, and they also have to think about winning, which is the second part, which is um, they go through a transition. They may not recognize it, but, you know, they lose historically, you know, almost half of their top people within the first six months. And you really want an incumbent president to be thinking about what did they learn from the first term that will make them better the second term? And how do they want to staff the government uh, in the second term and be uh, plan and be thoughtful? It's a different set of issues, but it's a real set of issues. So um, the long and short of it is that um, we are deeply engaged this year. Uh, you mentioned Dave Marchick is running that effort. We're helping in all ways we can and getting smarter and making it better. 
and doing it all virtually. Yes, I mean, you think about it, it is a hellacious process in the ordinary course. Uh, Mike Levitt talks about you're, you're creating a government in miniature. I don't know if this works for you, but I always think about it sort of like the Big Bang, pre-Big Bang, you know, so like the government before it all, you know, explodes out. It's huge, it's immense, you know, you're talking, and again, this, this year, so I don't know, you know Danny better since you're the budget man. Is it a $4 trillion government? Is it a $7 trillion government? It's as big, you know, hundreds of operating units, millions of people. Um, and this year you've got all the issues that we face from COVID to economic issues. I'm fearful of national security concerns. I think you know, COVID is a disabling force nationally, internationally. And I think it's, you know, this is the moment of maximum weakness for a country is when you're transitioning for our country. Um, and then you're doing it virtual, which, you know, is crazy. You think about, you know, how do you create the team? Uh, how do you um, vet people? I mean, all these issues are, are quite real. Yeah, it feels like, um, you know, the transition that occurred in 2008, 2009, we were in the middle of an economic crisis. And I remember thinking this is a, a particularly stressed environment to hand over power. This year, if it happens, feels exponentially more challenging than 2008, 2009, given, given the, econo the economy is just as probably just as challenging as it was, but, but add on top of that, the pandemic, the, 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 the social unrest and issues that the country's facing, um, and then some of the impacts of climate change, like the forest fires and hurricane season. It's just, I don't know, for most people that I talk to, it just feels like an unusually um, troubling environment that we're in right now. Danny, you're 100% right. This is steal from Dave again here. He talks about it being 1918 on top of 1932 on top of 1968. And you don't even, you can't even, you know, all those, you don't even cover all the issues that are, are happening right now. It's, 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 it's hellacious. And, and I don't think we're through, um, which is my point about national security. So absolutely. And I would add that we also have a government that needs help. So you have all these urgent issues that need to be addressed and you better be thinking about how do we, you know, build better our government because um, it is got to deliver, not just now, but in the future. And it requires forward investing that's not occurred in a very, very long time. So, you know, one of the things that I'm keenly focused on is not just what's the immediate urgent delivery needs, but also what can and should be done to make sure we have a government ready for not just the now, but the future. And with the uh, recent Supreme Court um, vacancy with the loss of um, uh, the great RBG, you can, David can now add a, a little bit of the 1890s in there with the Supreme Court crisis as well. So it thinks, you know, it, it seems like the longer he waits, the more years of turmoil he can add to this uh, particular year. Oh, it's, it's, it's truly unbelievable. And, and I think we all have a role here. And I think this is one of the, we have an unusual moment, not only of crisis, but again, back to the Sammies of opportunity. I think we have a moment in which people can see why their government working right really matters. And I hope it will mean that they will invest in a government that can actually deliver on the things that we all want. And I think it requires that. I think we've had a leadership deficit inside government and outside. 
where people have fought over policy without recognizing the critical nature of, of, of capability, of institutional um, and execution uh, you know, uh, power that will enable policy to occur. And I think, again, whether you're a business leader, philanthropy, university president, um, you know, agency head, you, you, you got to be thinking about your, your long-term viability of, you know, a critical element of our democracy, our government. No, I think, All right. I think the Sammies are always needed. I think they're particularly needed now. And I think it's great that you've found a way to make it more available to more people so that they can see how important and meaningful and exciting uh, a program it actually it is. And it sounds like you've even taken it up a notch too. I hope so. I, I, that's my that's my hope, and, and I know you'll be taken up a notch because your listenership is going to participate. Oh yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. parting uh, parting question for you, Max. So um, and you've hit on some of this, but I'll I'll make you do a summation of it. Is it's such a challenging time. It's not just for the country, obviously, but but it impacts the work, the government workforce in such significant ways because they're all in the middle of a pandemic too, but have these responsibilities and these accountabilities, thinking about the people at HHS and CDC specifically or FDA that are dealing with these issues, thinking about the people at FEMA um, uh, and the, and the, and the uh, local enforcement people dealing with forest fires in California. Give us a message of optimism. Like what is your, for the government workforce, like lo lo looking forward, what is there on the horizon that we should be thinking about that, um, that, that we can all look forward to with, with a sense of hope versus a sense of despair, given, given how challenging these things are today? Look, I think that the, you know, we end where we started with the Sammies. The message of hope is really about the extraordinary work that federal workers are, are, are doing. People are in government because they care about the mission. And whether it's at GSA or at NASA or OMB, they're there because they know that um, they get to make a real difference for people. And they can do it in all kinds of ways. And my message of hope is that uh, you look at what our government is delivering despite all these challenging uh, challenges. I think we have an incredible workforce that bluntly is being failed by you know, leaders and by the system that they're operating in. And I think we now have an opportunity to provide a better system and we can try to encourage leaders to take their responsibilities around the health of the, the workforce and the government uh, more seriously, because I think that's the only way that we're going to get there. Um, but you just have to look at these stories and you can't help but smile and be amazed and feel, you know, just deep in your heart that, you know, that they're great people making a real difference and, and we, we have hope in our world. That's great. Dan, any parting thoughts? No, I, I, I'm going to leave it with Max's thought. And then I just ask people to hold on uh, to the end because we're going to have some details on how they can join us for our Sammy's watch party. I'm excited about the Sammy's. I love it every year, but I'm particularly excited about this year because I don't have to put on a tuxedo. Uh, yes, you do. No. I, for our watch party, I'm totally putting on a tuxedo. Are you uh, kidding really? me? Really? You did that. I shouldn't have said anything because then I could have yeah. fled ignorance. All right. So I'll put on a tuxedo. No, 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 no. It'll be funny yeah, if you yeah. wear like top hat. Top hat. Just, hat, put, on, hat. Yes. just put on a, a shirt. I'll, I'll have to fight <laughs> my bow tie and, and I'll wear yeah. my jacket. No one needs to know what's happening anywhere else. So. 
Um, <laughs> yes. But, uh, thank you, Max. I really appreciate it. You, you joined on very quickly with very little notice, and you did a great job as usual. And uh, excited for the Sammies and excited for bringing the Gov Actually crowd and their friends and family into the into the fold of seeing it and witnessing what's really an amazing night. Thank you yeah, the, for, for including that pleasure. And there's no uh, World Series game or Nats game to worry about, right? The Nats <laughs> are out of it, so. They're out of it, but we have the Nats involved. Let me put it that way. Oh, oh that, that, that is a teaser. teaser. I feel you, Billy woke up there. He's like, what? Tell me. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Not that he wasn't paying attention. I'm just saying that he particularly reacted. So <laughs> anyway. Awesome. Thanks, guys. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, Gov Actually listeners, as promised, here are the details for our Sammy's Watch Party. Join Danny and me for a pre-show event with past Sammy's winners and other guest stars. We'll then stream the Sammy's show and wrap up with a special after party. All you need to do is register to get a link to the event and then join in at 7.25 p.m. EST on October 5th. That's 7.25 p.m. EST on October 5th. To register, go to bit.ly slash govactuallylive. That is bit.ly slash govactuallylive. G-O-V-A-C-T-U-A-L-L-Y-L-I-V-E. Can't wait to see you there.